scripture reading for tonight comes from Luke chapter 7. And uh, we, we are taking a, a break from our uh, series that we're in the middle of in, in Mark's gospel. And we're going to continue uh, looking at what I'll, I'll describe in a little bit more detail in a few minutes is a vision renewal series where we're looking at who we are, uh, why we're here, uh, what, what are we doing. And uh, we're going to look at this passage tonight because the main focus of our time for tonight is I want us to think about a fundamentally central theme to the Bible, without which you simply cannot understand Christianity, nor can you ever experience it personally. And it's this, this idea of grace. And we're going to look at this passage from Luke 7 to uh, look into that idea. So feel free to follow along as I read. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As I said, we're taking a break and we're looking at what we have, what we call here at Red Mountain Church, our four words that describe our vision and our values as a church at this point in our history. And those four words are worship, grace, community, and place. And they're, they're listed for you in the back of your worship folder with brief descriptions that you can take a look at later. And these express for us key themes from the Bible to describe who we are and what we're doing and what it means for us as a church to endeavor to seek to love God, 
as a, a local body of believers and to love our neighbors here in the city of Birmingham. And last week we looked at, at the first of the four words. We looked at worship. And this week we're going to look at the word grace. And as much as any other single word that there is in the Christian vocabulary, this word opens the door to the very heart of Christianity. And therefore, it, it's incredibly important for us to come back to it again and again and again. In fact, if you've been with us for any length of time, this is the theme that I hope you hear every single week. Whatever else we talk about, from whatever passage in the Bible, it is my hope and desire and um, my ambition, actually, to make sure that you understand from any number of facets what this idea of grace really is. Because Christianity teaches you that you are not saved by living a good life, but by a free gift that you don't deserve. It's a free gift of grace that God gives to all who receive it. Therefore, what I want you to to hear this evening is that grace teaches us that Christianity isn't based on your ability to measure up or earn God's favor. It's based on accepting a free gift that you don't deserve. But there's a problem. Because the, the default mode of the human heart is to reverse this. To turn the very essence of Christianity on its head and turn it into what we might call a religion of works. We could say it a self-salvation strategy. A way to actually get to wherever it is you want to go. Whether it be a religious version or an irreligious version. Based on your effort. Your performance. Your piety. Your desires. Your ambition. And there are really two forms to this. The first is by trying to be really, really good. We call that the religious version. But the second version of this is by living your life your way, whatever your way may look like. And we could call that the irreligious version. And while it's perhaps not immediately obvious why both of these types of people are essentially the same, both people are trying to save themselves. Both people are living as though they are the Lord and Savior of their lives. And it's totally different than what Christianity really teaches. And therefore, I want to look at this passage in Luke 7, and I want us to see uh, three things about grace tonight. That grace exposes your religion. That grace levels the playing field. And that grace transforms your identity. So first, let's look at how grace exposes our religion. In this story, look at the situation here. Here is, we have basically three main characters. We have a Pharisee whose name is Simon. We have Jesus. And then we have this woman of the city. The sinful woman. And we don't exactly know who she is. The commentators speculate about her identity, but this passage doesn't tell us explicitly who she is other than to say she's a woman of the city who is a sinner. And Simon, this Pharisee, invites Jesus to his house to recline at the table. 
that phrase appears three times in the story, to recline at the table. And um, I, some of you may be aware of this, but let me just tell you a little bit about how first century table manners work, especially when you go to a religious leader's house. This is no uh, just normal family meal. This is a, a meal that's likely at a religious leader's house where uh, there is a our number of elites, religious elites present. I don't necessarily mean elite in a bad way, just prominent, significant. And they recline at the table. In other words, the table really is maybe not much off the ground at all. And there are cushions placed around it. And you would lie on your side, leaning on one elbow, and your feet would be out in back of you, away from the table. And oftentimes at these kinds of meals, there would also be spectators to these homes. So there'd be people perhaps who knew this dinner was going to happen and they would come and listen in. And this woman of the city fits into that group of people. She has learned about this meal that Jesus would be there and she goes. She walks into this scenario and here Luke describes her as walking in She brought this alabaster flask of ointment, and she's standing at his feet. So behind, not almost in, perhaps think of it this way. Here's the significant meal, and there are people watching and listening. And she enters into that um, no-fly zone, if you will, (laughs) between the people of prominence and the spectators. And she's a woman of the city walks up behind Jesus, and she's weeping. And the term there for weeping is often used to describe elsewhere in the Bible a torrential rainstorm. You have in view here a woman who has learned of Jesus, walks into this very significant setting, weeping at his feet, so much so that her tears wash off the dirt from his feet. In the first century, you didn't have shoes like we did. They wore sandals. Your feet were filthy everywhere you went. And it was ordinary that when you walked into someone's home, they would give you water and a towel to wash your feet. And maybe even sometimes some oil to uh, put on your head as a refreshment. And here this woman, she weeps, wetting and wiping his feet with her hair drying them off. And you need to know this about in the first century also. You did not let your hair down like that unless you were with your husband in private. It seems really odd to us, but to let your hair down as the story describes this woman, to kneel at Jesus' feet, to wipe his feet with her hair was a very intimate gesture, which you can only imagine what people thought was happening here. It's an incredibly provocative scenario and situation. Perhaps many people were sitting there thinking, well, this is exactly what she does. She's a woman of the city. She seduces people and she's doing it to Jesus. And she anoints his feet. Usually you anoint a person's head. She anoints his feet as an incredible picture of her recognition of her deep unworthiness. 
and also of profound gratitude. And then notice Simon's reaction in verse 39. We'll come back to this woman after we look at Simon's reaction. He says, If this man, meaning Jesus, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, how does the grace expose your religion? First of all, I just want you to see Jesus, nowhere in this passage does Luke give us any any indication that he flinches. He receives this woman's tears. He accepts her humility, her gratitude, her love for him. And instead of it rearranging the way that Simon understands who Jesus is, he indicts Jesus and is utterly condescending about the woman. Notice what he says. If Jesus really was a prophet, in other words, if he really was a messenger from God, he wouldn't do that. He would know what kind of person this is. Because And God's messengers don't do this kind of thing. That's not how God relates to, to people, let alone this woman. Now, You see, because Jesus allows this woman to anoint his feet, Simon simply concludes he's not the Messiah. He's not a true messenger of God. And furthermore, what proves he's not a messenger from God, because, you know, people like this, they're not worthy of of the attention of one of God's prophets. And here's the issue. Jesus' reception of this woman fundamentally challenges Simon's and even our entire self-image. Let me try to explain this to you. You see, the reason Simon's having a hard time here is because this woman does not fit in any way what it looks like to follow God. She She bears no resemblance to someone who is like Simon, a religious person who is serious about following God. And here's the question I think it raises for him and for us. If this is how God relates to sinners, then where does that leave me? Think about this for a minute. If this is how Jesus relates to sinners, where does that leave me? Because what this means is, there is nothing unique about Simon that brought Jesus to come have dinner with him. The fact that Jesus welcomes this woman completely undermines any notion that Simon's religion, however robust and faithful and enduring it is, guarantees that God will love him. It completely undermines any notion that by living a good life, God will love you. Because Jesus welcomes this woman who is a sinner, this woman of the city. You see, the point I want to make in drilling down on Simon's reaction here is that grace really does, it exposes our religious hearts. It exposes the ways in which you and I, however much we may or may not see it yet, the default mode of the human heart is to justify your existence. 
to look for something in your life that says, I'm okay. I'm going to be fine. And Jesus, in this story, in receiving this woman, is turning that upside down. Because everything Simon ever understood about a relationship with God is, is now up for grabs. It's not how he used to think it was or how it really is. And I want you to see here that living a good life, trying to be really, really good, for Simon is even more of a hindrance to understanding Christianity than the life that this woman has lived. Here is this woman of the city who gets who Jesus is. And here is this religious man who cannot fathom that what Jesus is doing is actually the way that God relates to people like you and me. And so you see, Simon, he couldn't see that he needed to come to Jesus with his righteousness, his goodness, in the same way this woman came to Jesus with her unrighteousness, her badness. Which leads us to the second thing that grace teaches us, that grace levels the playing field. Grace levels the playing field. Look in verses 40 to 46 here. See, Jesus perceives Simon's total lack of understanding, so he tells him a story, a little parable. And in this parable, there, there's a money lender, there are two debtors, and they both cannot pay their debt. And then in the story, I want you to see three things that Jesus is trying to teach Simon about grace and that we need to learn about grace from Jesus. And the first thing here is that grace is humbling. Look in verse 42, as Jesus tells the story, the money lender and the two debtors, one of which owned a tremendous amount of money and the other a small amount of money. But in verse 42, he tells us neither of them could pay. You see, the first step in grasping grace is coming to terms with the fact that you are in debt to God and you cannot pay your debt. And this is a story form of what the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 says when he says, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, grace is humbling. Whether you are a big sinner like the woman or a little sinner like Simon... Jesus is telling you, and and through this story, both of those people are debtors. No amount of religion will change that fact. Both of them are debtors and are incapable of paying their debt or earning their way back. So that's the first thing. Grace is humbling. But the second thing is grace is costly. Look in verse 44. When Jesus tells the story, they could not pay Actually, in verse 43, he tells us that the money lender canceled their debt. In verse 42, sorry. The money lender cancels the debt. Well, if any of you have, had, have ever given someone a loan or you're in business, and you, either to a, a business partner or a friend or family member, and they come to you, you've loaned them something. And for whatever reason, they cannot pay you back. 
You might forgive that debt, but you simply cannot forgive that debt without absorbing the cost in your own life. Debts don't just go away. A debt is a debt. Either the person loaned something must pay it back, or the person who loaned it must absorb it. And here we see the moneylender, he, he absorbs the debt. He cancels their debt. In other words, Jesus is teaching us that grace is costly. And this goes to the very heart of what Christianity is all about. That Jesus, at the cost of his own life, absorbs your debt of sin against God. This is what the cross teaches us again and again and again. You, can sim- you simply cannot pay your debt. And God himself, in sending his own son, has absorbed the cost that you cannot pay. That is the essence of Christianity. And it's why religion is so dangerous. Because religion basically says... I somehow have to get back to God. That's the essence of almost any religion in the world. Somehow it's up to me to to get to wherever that place of salvation or nirvana or inner peace, whatever it is, that's how I get there. But here Jesus is telling us that the gospel is the opposite of that. It's that God comes to us He absorbs what we cannot pay and He pays it for us in the gift of His own Son. And so the second step of understanding this grace is coming to terms with the fact someone else has to pay your debt. Grace is humbling because we cannot pay. It's costly because we cannot pay it and someone else has to. But third, grace is convicting. Look in verses 43 to 46. Jesus, after telling the story, and interestingly, I think, when Jesus asks Simon about which one will love the moneylender more, Simon says, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I think that, I suppose, is rather ironic. (laughs) Well, of course, the one who had the larger debt, would love the moneylender more. All of a sudden, we begin to see, I think, in that just one I suppose, Simon is beginning to see what Jesus is saying. Simon, you are in debt, and you don't see it. And until you do, you will never understand me. You'll never understand why this woman walked into this situation weeping at my feet. And so Jesus says to him, he exposes Simon's hardness of heart. Because he says to him, he says, do you see this woman? And he describes in verse 44 to 46, all the ways that a normal greeting into a house in the first century in this kind of situation should unfold. Listen to what he says again. Jesus says, do you see this woman? It's convicting. Jesus is saying, you need to look at this woman. 
And then he says, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That's a normal thing to do. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Then he says, you gave me no kiss, which is a normal greeting. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is confronting and convicting Simon. Because what's different in this story, the difference between the woman and Simon, is that she believes Jesus loves her not because she measures up, but precisely because she doesn't measure up. And here we find the irony of the story, that the person that you would think would be in, Simon, is out. And the person that you think you would think would be out is in. This woman you would never expect to understand or be welcomed into God's presence, she's in. And this religious leader of prominence who you think would be in is actually out. And it's his religion that's keeping him out. And in fact, it's this woman's sin that brings her in because she sees in Jesus someone who forgives, who cleanses, who welcomes those who cannot pay their debt, who wipes away shame, who removes guilt. And therefore, what I want you to think for a moment is, well, what is a Christian? Ask this question. What is a Christian? See, this story teaches us, you and me, that we need to be saved from our good works just as much as our bad works. This is what Simon does not see. Do do you see that? Do you see that? You see, a Christian is someone who not only repents for everything that they do wrong, but also for all the reasons they ever did anything right. Because by nature, even the good things that we do at some level are always done with a degree of self-love, self-promotion, wedded into them. And therefore, the third step to grasp grace is that you need to repent of your righteousness, not just your sin. And you see, grace exposes our religion, it levels the playing field, and it all with a view to transforming your identity and fixing it on Jesus and His grace. Let me show you how this happens in the story, that grace transforms your identity. Put yourself in the, in the place of this woman for a minute. How would you feel walking into this banquet, this dinner, with these distinguished people and this man, Jesus, no less, with people presumably there watching and listening in, given her background, given her history, she doesn't even have a name in the story. She is referred to as a woman of the city. Put yourself in her shoes. What would it feel like to walk into that situation? I think if you thought about it for very long, you would realize and see it was 
a fertile breeding ground for insecurities and doubts. What are these people going to think of me? Will they kick me out? Will Jesus pay attention to me? Would he accept me in the midst of even this kind of a situation? And I want you to see what Jesus does for this woman. He gives her two promises. And they are aimed directly at your insecurity and your doubt. He says to her in verse 48, Your sins are forgiven. He promises her that Christianity is, is, is not about how well you measure up. It's about God's costly grace in Him. See, He is promising her before all of these people who know what she's like, have some inkling of her life history, and He is saying to her, as far as the east is from the west, that far, I am removing your sin from you. And He is promising her that her sin is no longer what defines her. She is no longer to be referred to as a woman of the city, for she is a sinner. She is to be now thought of as a forgiven sinner, beloved by Jesus. And how can you be sure when when you begin to have this promise, the words of the Bible wash over you, and you hear not just these words of Jesus to this woman in the story that your sins are forgiven, but that promise begins to break into your life as if God was saying it to you through His Word. Your sins are forgiven. How can you be sure that you really are forgiven? And that comes in the second promise He makes. Look in verse 50. He says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, it may seem like Jesus is, what he's really saying is, in the end, it's it's really not my grace and forgiveness. It's really your faith that saves you. How bad you want it or how serious you are about it. How much you believe or how hard you work at working up faith to believe. And I need to try to show you that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. In fact, it completely misunderstands faith. And how we know that is, if you, if you notice, you might want to you could take a look at this later, but in verse 47, Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus describes her as possessing these sins, as it were. But then notice... What he describes in verse 50, that she has faith. What Jesus is doing here, he is contrasting her many sins with her faith. And what he, therefore, what he's saying is, your many sins no longer define you. You are now known by your faith in me. Jesus no longer relates to her on the basis of her sin and guilt but on the basis of her new relationship with him. So let me think like that. I want you to try to there's a, tell you a little story. Uh, try to make this point about faith. Jesus is not saying it's this woman's belief that saves her. 
as if it's something that it's a work of hers. But what saves her is what her faith is in. Uh, imagine with me for a moment, there is a, uh, a frozen pond. And you have two, very, two different people, both on one uh, bank of the pond, and they both have to get to the other side of the pond. One person is completely convinced that they're going to get to the other side. They really, really believe that 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 icy pond will hold. And so they make their way out, and they're just convinced that they're going to get across. And they continue to go, and they get to the other side, and they're there. Then the other person is absolutely terrified. They have no confidence the smallest amount of faith you could imagine that that ice is going to hold them. And they, one little step at a time, start to walk, terrified with every step they take. And then they eventually make it to the other side. In both cases, what saved those two people and got them across that pond was not the strength of their faith. But it was the strength of the ice. It was the object of their faith. It was what they put their faith in that saved them. And Jesus here is saying, when he says, your faith has saved you, essentially what he's saying, we could summarize it as, I have saved you. And you have put your faith in me. That's why you are saved. Now go in peace. You see, these are two promises that really are become the chorus for grace to sinners. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So remember, where did we start? We were were revisiting uh, this message of grace to, to renew our vision about who we are through this one idea. And we began talking about the default mode of the human heart. To justify our existence in any number of ways. Either by following all the rules or by blowing off all the rules. But the key to grasping this message of Christianity is understanding that grace is radically different than both moralism and relativism. It's neither of those. It's a gift that God has given And it exposes our religion, it levels the playing field, and it fundamentally has the power to transform your identity. No matter what you walked in here with, God's grace in Jesus is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story about Jesus and Simon and this woman. And I pray that this story would resonate with us, that you would do the work that Uh, you need to do in each of our lives as we reflect on it and think about it and consider what it means that grace is humbling and it's costly and it's even convicting. And yet you, Lord Jesus, have come to humble us and even to convict us not to leave us there, but in order that we might have new life through faith in you. So we ask that you would work out this grace in each of our lives, in our community, and throughout the city. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.